For those who don't know me, my name is Vin, Vin Doan. Uh, if you didn't understand my accent, well, that's, that's going to be a problem for you. Anyway, Vin Doan like Vin Diesel, except for, well, I've got a better body, I think. <laughs> except for Sam. Sam's body is, oof, that is something magnificent. <laughs> hey, I say that as a very confident married man. Anyway, um, if you guys open up to Psalm 46, and as you do that, I'll... Um, you know, whether electronically or your physical Bible, Psalm 46, we're going to go all through the 11 verses. Hi to everyone online as well. So please, like, join in with me as we sort of go through this. Um, yeah, so thankful to be here this morning at Crossridge. Thanks uh, to Lee. We've become really good friends. Um, I think he enjoyed my impersonation of uh, Peppa Pig. So kids, I'm close, very close. Daddy, that's as good as it gets. Okay, and so anyway... So open up the Psalm 46 and let me introduce us to this uh, sort of passage by sharing this first. I'm married to Laura. We've been married for a few years and every now and then, uh, Laura and I will, uh, we like to converse obviously on the phone, whatever, but she in particular loves to call me almost every single day, okay? Every single day she'll call me. Now that sounds romantic to you, but let me tell you the backstory because it's not she will call me and she will ask me very specific questions of like where like where are you? Not not the how are you or you know what are you doing? Who are you with? Sometimes she'll ask me uh, you know what I mean who I'm with, but most of the time she's going to ask me where are you? And I'll sort of tell her sort of a, a general place of where I am, but she wants to know specifics. The reason why she does that is she's checking on me to see if I'm telling her the truth. Why is that a thing? Because she has on her phone, the iPhone, Find My iPhone app. So she knows exactly where I am. And she's just trying to test me to see exactly, you know, if I'm telling the truth about where I am. The truth is, we, you know, after eight years of marriage, you know, Laura and I actually laugh at that. It's no issue. We don't, I, if I was a single young man, that would be different. It would be overbearing. It would be too much. My freedom is ultimately taken away. But because of the relationship, because like the love that I know that Laura and I share, it actually changes the way I view the relationship I have with her. So that when she asks me those questions, it doesn't overwhelm me. And then we can laugh and build even further into our relationship. So let me read for us Psalm 46, verses 1 all the way to 11, okay? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the question I have for us after reading that is, who do I or who do you or who do we put our trust in? That's a question I want to answer this morning. When you look at Psalm 46, you're going to notice that it's broken up into three stanzas or like sort of three sections, three sort of paragraphs. So it goes from verses 1 to 3, then 4 to 7, and then 8 to 11. Okay, those are the three stanzas. We will go through sort of each stanza, each section, uh, to see how the psalmist actually, you know, sort of asks that sort of question, but also how he addresses it and gives us a very clear answer. So ultimately, Psalm 46 is actually a psalm of trust, okay, in the face of, so, um, in the face of overwhelming threat or a threat. We're not exactly sure what that threat is. Some commentators have said that it could be, you know, the answer could be in verse 6, but they're still unsure that a threat is coming from a different, a whole bunch of nations attacking sort of Israel. But they're still not sure of exactly what that is. But ultimately, it's a psalm of trust. So if you look at stanza 1, in verse 1, it's very clearly in the very beginning, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength. So the psalmist in the very beginning is reminding the readers that the first important and primary idea is this, is that God himself is our refuge. That God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is our safe space and place. It's the idea of being like getting chased by a bully and finally coming into the embrace of the one you feel most protected by. And then God is our strength. Don't think of strength as just as a young man with all his physical strength. That's, yeah, one component of it. But the other component is think of also uh, like a middle-aged man. You know, a middle-aged man with all his sort of inner resolve, the ones that he's like got young kids, got a wife, got a job, got a mortgage to pay. Think about it. You know, he has to juggle all of life. And yet he has the inner resolve to like keep going, persevering. But then also think of an elderly man with all his strength in the, in the sense of wisdom. He's gone through life. He knows more than the younger guy and the middle-aged guy. So you've got the young, the middle-aged, and the old. Like God is this all-encompassing idea of strength. That's what it means by strength. And even though God has other characteristics... This is the characteristics that the psalmist is very focused on. This is this, the starting point, the jumping off point as he continues, especially in relation to this idea of danger and, and things coming to attack. Then you see in you know, verse 1 again, after refuge and strength, it says that a very pre- like God himself is a very present help in, um, in trouble. So, look, the idea first seems strange and almost unattainable for us. And the reason why I bring that up is this. Because God feels very distant most of the time. 
So why would the psalmist say that he's present? Though for most of us and most of our experience, God can feel very distant. And yet he chooses the word present. Now the Hebrew word for the word here that translates as present is actually the meaning is can be found when you need it. That's the proper translation. Can be found when you need it. Think of it this way. When you're feeling a little bit uh, peckish or you want a snack, you know, something before, you know, a big meal, whether it's in your house or the house you've broken into, you know exactly where to go to go get a snack. You either go to the fridge or the pantry. That's the place you naturally go and look. But what you need to know here is one of the key components to the wording of the word present here is there's an actual proactive component. There's a verb to it. It's this idea of you don't just sit there on your couch when you're feeling a little bit peckish and hoping that this servant comes and serves you food. There's a proactive component in getting to engage with God as he is a very present help in danger. That you've got to get off your couch and go to the pantry or go to the fridge. So my question then is also, the funny thing is we all know what God has put in into this relationship that we have with him. And if you don't know, you should. But I wonder what we put in. Or do we expect to sit there and let God do sort of all the work for us? Uh, My brother and sister-in-law have a really cute dog named Joey. I'm not a dog owner. And, um, you know, Joey's a very small, cute little dog. But he's one of these dogs, like typical small dogs that I notice out in public is this. He barks a lot, as if he's tough. Especially when he's in his place, as in his home. When I enter into the house, he barks a lot. But you know what happens with a small dog that barks a lot when you take him outside and he sees bigger dogs and then bigger strangers than me? He doesn't bark. He runs, he hides. But he doesn't just run and hide anywhere. When he goes out in public, he, what he does is he runs between his owner's legs and cows in fear. Because he's terrified. And just like Joey, the psalmist knows that the best place and person for you to go to in times of trouble, that your safest and best place, according to the psalmist, is God himself. This is the place and person that the psalmist trusts the most and is giving you this advice. See, for him, that he knows that the deeper the relationship, the deeper the trust. Think about it another way. Like most men, when you're dating a woman, so for, especially because I deal with young adults, when a lot of these young adults or whatever, these men are dating women, and you get to the place where you sort of love and want to marry, you're on sort of your best behavior. You know, you suck in your gut, you, you know what I mean? Like you don't, you wear your nicest clothes, whatever it is. But what happens once the relationship gets a little bit more comfortable? You get some legs on it. Once you put that ring on her finger, guess what? That gut's hanging out. 
You loosen that belt. You wear your sweatpants, whatever it is. You just let that belly hang loose. See, the truth is, ultimately, lovers give up their freedom in a relationship. Because you are most free and secure in a restricted relationship. This is what I mean. So it's just, just to encourage us. I know that the pandemic is sort of, sort of changing now. And things are being sort of let loose. But can I encourage us, especially for those at home, that the gathering here is so important. That this is actually part of your relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. The one that you deem as the one that you love the most. He's not there to serve you as you sit on your couch. And have your beautiful cinnamon bun. (laughs) But he's calling you together to be part of this healthy relationship as you come. For you to get up and go to the pantry and go to the fridge. And get off that couch. Come be encouraged here, together, not alone. Because if you do, God will continue to reveal his, the depth of love that he has for you. And so the deeper the relationship, the deeper the trust. But don't trust that you can just be there at home and just stay there and that everything will go right. And those questions that run through your head is, where is God in the midst of this? You can't answer it on your own. In verses 2 and 3, what you're going to notice is, in the next couple of verses you see in verses 2 and 3, you're going to notice the words, earth, mountains, and sea. So I was always, I'm always encouraging our people, especially our young adults, to you know, highlight, circle, underline, whatever it is. But earth, mountains, and sea. Here the psalmist is giving us a couple of images. Images of things we sort of, um, we sort of faithfully deem as stable and trustworthy objects. These are these inanimate objects that, that in a sense, that can't be moved. Where you left them yesterday, you're going to find them there tomorrow. They will be there tomorrow and they will, you know, they're always going to return. Once you get there, they're going to be there. But also the idea that the psalmist is actually trying to give us here is this. First of all, you can't control the earth, the mountains and the sea. God has set them there. And the funny thing is, the language that he uses, he's getting you to question, and if these objects could move, the psalmist knows it would shake your faith, would it not? It would shake your understanding of the world. But his encouragement is that it, it doesn't need to. The thing he's trying to share with us is this, is that the things that we deem the most stable are not stable compared to God himself. That's what the psalmist is trying to say. The things that you deem the most stable in the entire world, on this planet we call earth, is still not as stable as God. So my question then also is, so what things do we look at today in things that we trust? For a lot of us, it be money, it be sex, it be our job security, our house, our car. We deem that as completely secure in our lives. Or are we waiting for this pandemic to end so that our lives will come back 
to this sort of stable platform. But guess what? As soon as COVID ends, as soon as this is all done, you get your vaccine or whatever it is, or you choose not to, whatever. Even if this ends, you don't think there's something around the corner waiting for us again? Of course there is. If you keep trusting in this world to, to have your stable, little, comfortable life, it's not going to happen. That's why the psalmist keeps pushing us towards, towards God and not the things of the world. This is why, if you look at, especially in particular with the Old Testament, because we're staying there now, that's why in the Old Testament, every time we see God in the Old Testament introduce himself to a new character in the Bible, if you notice some of the things he says, one of the key components of something he says is, he will introduce himself as, I am God, the father of your, these four fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He keeps saying that over and over again to a new character. Why does he do that? Because he's reminding this new character of everything I've done in the past. I've been faithful. I've been stable. Everything is trustworthy. So if you remember all those things, then you've got nothing to worry about in your future either. That's why he introduces himself like that. Not saying that in your, not just in your future you're secure, but think about the present as well. Everything I've done in the past. Then as we go to Stanza 2 in verse 4, you're going to see, in verse 4 he talks about then a river, a stream, in God's holy sort of habitation. It's this beautiful language. Here's why this is important. Why he transferred from this sort of roaring and foaming sea in verses 3 and 2, and then he then comes into verse 4 and says, then now there's a river. There's a comparison. See, we, it's because of what he said previously, now he sort of makes this comparison. Why is this comparison important? See, during this time, not just when this was penned, but even previously, in, in, there were other accounts of the flood. There was one in particular in uh, Mesopotamia's account of the flood. The story goes is that in, the, in this account, in Mesopotamia's account, once the flood overwhelms the earth, the story goes is that the gods themselves then cower in fear behind their own wars in heaven. They're scared of the flood. They're scared of the chaos of the flood and the waters that overwhelm the earth because it's unleashed, you know, this anger against humanity. But the waters threaten to destroy the gods themselves. The idea is, in the other accounts outside of the God of Israel's account of like Noah and the flood, every other account, the waters were threatening to the gods themselves. It got to the point in the flood that it was so overwhelming that the gods cowered in fear. Except for the God of Israel. Because this was a time when all were unsure about the waters of the earth. They felt overwhelming, uncontrollable, too big for anyone to look after. And yet, God himself is saying, I'm not, I'm not fearful, but here's the bigger piece. The language then goes on to say this. 
the idea is that God alone, there's one component of yes, God can sort of calm the storm. But the big component is this, that where God dwells, there is peace. The, the, the waters rage and stuff like that, and they, you know, they foam, and, but yet in the midst of God, they're like calm. That's the image. That there will be no fear in the habitation of where God is. There will be peace like a river. Then in verse 6, you see that the nations rage and the nations totter. Even as civilization has advanced throughout the centuries, here's something that remains the same. Since back when this was written to now. And this is an important question because, you know, it, the truth is, yeah, if God is with us, what you don't know, like, why do we ultimately sti- still feel terrified? But here, if you think about today, the nations still hate and still fight each other, do they not? This hasn't ended. This biblical truth that was written thousands of years ago is still true today. And it will remain that way even as we pass away as people. And nations will continue to fall. They'll fight and they'll fall. There's a book called um, One Billion Americans by the author Matt Iglesias. Basically, this is the premise of the book. He holds to the idea that America is a great nation. Okay, Whether we agree with that or not, doesn't matter. But in order to maintain that status, his premise is this. He's saying America needs to increase its birth rate and immigration in order to compete with the population of other nations. He's saying the number, the magic number for America will be a billion. If we reach a billion, then those who are born, we can, you know, like sort of shove our ideas on them, but also those who immigrate will also come underneath our power and authority. That's his plan. And as great as America might be, it knows and feels the threat of a country like China. That's, that's its basis. That's its fear. That's what's driving it. It's, it's fear. And every big nation will live in fear forever. Think about the history of that. Every great nation from the Mongols to the Roman Empire to the British Empire, they all wanted to remain on top, did they not? But history keeps reminding us, what? That every nation falls, and yet we still try. I've been in Canada for now, what, eight years? Um, one of the things I think as a Canadian, uh, you know, as, as, as a permanent resident, you know, getting to eventually be a citizen, one of the things I notice about here in Canada is, um, I guess we'd call ourselves a, quite a progressive country. Something we sort of, I think, pride ourselves in. And then I have to say sorry because I said that, because I'm Canadian. But part of, uh, part of the idea that I notice here in Canada is this, is that our, our drive is, behind this all is, if we include all and not exclude all, that will bring us as a nation together. I think that's the general idea. But the truth is, what's happened? Think about it. 
the more we think we're including people and not excluding people, what's happened to our country, we're probably more divided than I think we've ever been in the last even eight years that I've been here. We're more divided. And yet the psalmist continues to remind us that God is even more stable than any ideology that we can come up with from the best of the worst. It is still God that is stable. Then in stanza 3, you see in verse 8, the psalmist then, after all this, after the first two stanzas, he comes in verse 8 and then says, Hey, come, behold the works of the Lord. So what's the works of the Lord? For the psalmist, it would have been, yes, the stuff of, when God proclaims that he is the God of you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it, will, it would have been a whole component of things. It would have been thinking about that he you know, got Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. There would have been all these works that Israel would have thought of. And they would have meditated and contemplated on this. But also how he had done all these things to these other nations. But the good news for us is this is that we get to dwell on the work of the cross, do we not? That how Jesus then brought war to our sin and defeated sin so that we would live. We can meditate. We can come and behold the works of Christ. So the question now goes back to is, if God is with us during this season, then why do we still feel terrified and unsure and unsafe where everything is completely unpredictable. The psalmist actually gives us the answer. If you look at verse 9, he says, He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You see, in the time when this was penned, bows and chariots and spears and all those things, these were the things that the people trusted in. Right? That's them sort of flexing. They believed that through violence and conquering of another nation, that they would get their way. They would be famous and rich and all these things. So how would we translate that, translate that today? So today, it would be a little, maybe a little bit outrageous for us, especially as Canadians, to maybe go start a violent war, in order, you know, for us to sort of conquer other, other nations. So how do we do it today? Today would be our, our words. It would be our social media platforms. It would be like, we, we, you know, we're on this side, you're on that side. We still trust in our weapons. They just look different and sound different, but they're still our weapons. Even with this whole pandemic and COVID, I've seen, I've seen Christians go at each other more than ever before. From disagreements about churches gathering to not gathering, to Christians even on, on social media platforms saying, I'm so glad that that pastor got arrested. You're happy that a brother in Christ has been arrested? And you're trusting your words on social media to get your word out there? And here... Once again, in verse 10, one of the key or the most sort of famous lines in 46 is, Be still 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted on earth. The Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Here's the important part here. The word still uh, doesn't just mean what we think it means of just sitting still and sort of, like I said, doing nothing. The Hebrew word translated as still is the word cease and desist. The idea of the word is this. It's like two young children fight, fighting in their room for over a toy or whatever nonsense that they usually fight about. And the parent walks into the room and tells them to stop. It's more than that, them just stopping to shout at each other and, and whatever it is. The idea of it is to drop the thing that they're fighting over, whether it be a toy or whatever it is, but then to also turn and face the person who has just walked in into the room and called them to stop. That's the idea. See, church, Crossridge, only when we cease our own sort of frantic activity can we begin to experience God's acting for us, to drop our whims, to turn to him. The word know is there pretty much what it also means, but there's a bit more to it. And the reason why I want to explain it even a little bit more is this. Um, especially in our day and age, in Tony, uh, Tony Riken's book, uh, he writes a book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And one of the things he suggests in the generation that maybe I'm looking after, or even a lot, of, a lot of us in this room here is this. The suggestion he makes is the idea of our phone, you know, when we, let's say we go to whatever mountain here or river, whatever it is, and we take a picture. What he says is, once you take a picture, he goes, you take a picture and then you sort of mentally and emotionally move on because you think you've stored it on your phone. There's sort of an emotional uh, disengagement with it because you think because everything's on your phone, you'll revisit it and then recapture the awe of that mountain you just took of. But he's saying, no, 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 no. The problem is you moved on. You haven't even engaged and, and, and looked upon that mountain You've taken a photo, you've stored it on your phone, and you've walked away. And how often do you actually go back to your phone and look at that mountain again and be in awe of its presence? And, but knowing that the phone itself doesn't capture the magnificence of that mountain, only when you stand before it do you feel the weight of it. So there's a part of us even in church where we sort of know we take a quick snapshot of God. We do our little thing on Sunday, and then that's it. And mentally and emotionally and spiritually, we don't engage in thinking that I'll pick up my phone, which is like coming quickly on the Sunday gathering, and that's it. That's all the engagement you do. But church, can I encourage us to not just know him through his word and not just know him through the gathering, but also know him through community and know him through serving as well? You will know him deeply and more affectionately. So let me conclude with this. Church, can I encourage us to let us be still? Let us drop our weapons or the things we trust in to, to get our way. And not just to drop it, but to, to turn and then come to know the 
the God of the universe has walked into the room, walked onto the planet Earth to save us from ourselves. This is the moment that Jesus wants us in right now. During the, even in this time of complete confusion, and now we're on our toes knowing that the pandemic is somewhat a little bit over, yet in the midst of it, he's still, this is the moment I want you to be in. Would you trust that I'm still sitting on my throne and, and in charge of all things and the creator of all things? Would you cease and desist and put your weapons down and come to know why? Even here, I know, I crossroads that why we're passionate about proclaiming Christ to you. And some of us need to just stop barking like a big Rottweiler, but acknowledge that in the midst of a world that is so overwhelming, you've got to run to your Savior and enjoy Him forever. But by His life, death, and resurrection, to those who put their trust in Jesus, you will receive peace in the midst of a chaotic world. And it will be graciously given to you. I hope that you will come to know and I hope and I know that you have heard. The danger that we've done is there's too many of us out there who have preached and we've sort of what I call, we've dumbed down the gospel for you. And I've probably done that part when I was younger. And I apologize. But we've dumbed down the gospel because we made the story of Jesus as just something that you receive on the day of your salvation. That's it. It's something that you experience once you die, once you see Jesus. That this thing that we call the gospel of Christ is that something is not for today. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. The gospel of Jesus is not just for tomorrow. But it's your, for your life today. Trust in it. Let's pray. So Jesus, we give you great thanks for what you've done. We thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and your ultimate return. Jesus, we come before you, repentant, sorry, asking for your forgiveness. Because we continue to put our trust in other things. And we'll sort of go back and forth. But Jesus, would you continue to reveal yourself to us so we can trust in you more each and every day. Jesus, in the midst of this pandemic, our hope is in you, not in the relief of a pandemic, but in you alone. So will we continue to trust you and know you in that? And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.